Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Another good podcast and another good interview this week. You guys will be appreciating this. You've been around the scene for a while. You know who Jack Sacchetti is, and Jack Sacchetti's been out there banging it out on the drag strip, manufacturing parts, started JC Enterprises way back in the 80s. From his humble beginnings in metal shop class, manufacturing one-off parts for other buddies and drag racers, to creating the Terminator carburetors. We got this week's story with Jack Sacchetti. It's a good one, and you're going to really enjoy his talk about street racing days and how the hustle is always working. But before we get into that, remember this podcast is brought to you by VW Trends Magazine, a magazine for the people, by the people. Go to VW Trends Magazine right now and subscribe and get the latest issue. VW Trends, not the same old stuff that you see in every other magazine. A little bit of water-cooled, a little bit of air-cooled, and stuff from all over the country. Check it out. Back on the scene after long hiatus is VW Trends Magazine. Go to VWTrendsMagazine.com. And of course, we can't forget about our friends at Ross Wolf. Remember to support the suppliers that support your favorite podcast. We've seen it before, aftermarket distributor clamps that won't stay tight, ones that are bulky, incorrectly pinched, or even clamps with gimmicky timing marks that are useless. Ross Wolf solved the problem. They've built a simple, attractive, and functional distributor cap that won't fail. Simply put, the Ross Wolf distributor clamp is the finest available and most reliable way to secure your distributor. They use T6061 T6 aluminum that is as strong as structural steel, and they engineer the unit to clamp evenly across the surface. Ross Wolf has clamps for Type 1 and Type 2 engines as well as Type 3. Even a clamp for running MSD-style distributors on Type 3s and Type 4s. So make sure you go to rosswolf.com and check them out. Support our buddies that make some of the finest aftermarket parts for the VWC. Ross Wolf, purveyors of speed and style. We got a shout out this week for Frapper MC Jr. Says, having owned a VW for the better part of six years, I'm so happy that I found your podcast. Things started going stale with my restoration, but your content has made me get back into the garage and work. Wow, just wow, he says. Well, we appreciate you, Frapper MC Jr., and uh, get back in that garage and turn some wrenches. You'll enjoy this week's podcast. I've also got a shout-out for Jim Dix. Old Jimmy Jam decided to support the podcast by picking up some merch. We're going to get that stuff shipped out to you. Uh, to Yarmouth, England before long. So appreciate the support. And if you guys want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com, click on the merch tab or go to the store and pick out some cool threads or a cool hat, sticker pack, whatever you like, and we'll ship it off to you. And you get to support your favorite podcast. Also want to give a shout out to Eric Newth out of Modesto, California for supporting the podcast and picking up some merch. Now also this week, I'll leave a link down in the description below for my new podcast, 58 Days in a Mexican Prison. Episode one drops today. I've teamed up with Steve Connect's son, Ryan Connect, and he's done some audio editing for me, put some really cool background music to it, some sound effects and things like that that really make the podcast about my prison experience come to life. So make sure you click on the link at the bottom or web search it at 58 Days in a Mexican Prison. I know you guys heard me talk about it, but don't forget about one crazy weekend coming up October 7th and October 8th, the Orleans Hotel and Casino brought to you by Finley Volkswagen. It is the baddest event that you can have in Las Vegas. Strip cruise on Friday night, car show Saturday morning, and a poker run where I give away $2,500 in cash on Saturday night. So don't miss that. You want to make sure you get your rooms booked, go to letstalkdubs.com. Click on the link that says Showtime. The room discount rate code is there, and make sure you book your rooms 30 days in advance. October is busy for Vegas. Get your rooms locked in now. They've got rooms available for us. Get them locked in now. Change your plans. I don't care what you were doing. 
You're not doing anything but coming to Vegas October 7th and 8th for Let's Talk Dubs one crazy weekend. I look forward to seeing it. I got a surprise guest from the 80s. It's designed the new shirts for this year, so they're going to be a throwback from way back and totally legit. So you guys are going to miss out if you don't come to the Let's Talk Dubs one crazy weekend. Without any further ado, guys, let's get into it this week with Jack Sacchetti, NHRA record setter on Let's Talk Dubs. Here's a Volkswagen that's big enough. The new VW Fastback Sedan. The Fastback also has the most powerful engine we've ever made. It's air-cooled. Since we made a VW that's a little roomier in the inside, So on today's show, uh, I've been chasing this particular individual for a while, and uh, he's an accomplished drag racer, he's an eight-time champion, and an NHRA record holder. On today's podcast, I've got Jack Sacchetti. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for uh, hitting me up. No, I, I've been, well, we've been talking over, like, I think it's been a year and a half or two that I've been, I reached out to you and then kind of followed up with you every time I saw you, and now we're finally getting to uh, get your story down on the podcast. And the way that we always start our podcast is... What's your VW story, and how did you get into Volkswagens? Uh, it's a good question. The uh, you know age of fifteen. There's there's a lot of racing history since four years old. But at the age of fifteen, I had to choose from what I could afford, and it was a Volkswagen or a Corvair. And uh, you know both kind of similar families, but not exactly the same. And you know, in the early, late 70s, early 80s, the Cadillac scene was huge. And I was just lucky to, you know, like the car, afford that car, and um, had access to machines and making little trinkets here and there. And I was just into the scene, not really knowing where it was going or, or even thinking about that, but just enjoying the ride and, you know, always racing and it was in my background. Now, you come from a family of racers? Uh, no, uh, funny, funny deal is, uh, my foster parents were, uh, racers and I was four years old. And so I was always hanging out at the, um, you know, Lions drag strip, the original Irwindale, which is now I think Miller Brewing Company, that land, uh, OCIR, you know, just at a young age, I was exposed to it mm -hmm. and, um, you know, got a, a lot of Polaroid pictures I took when I was a kid, just, you know. And so come, so it's around high school when you start to get, like you're just getting out of junior high and you're looking to pick a first car, so you decide to pick a Volkswagen. Now, is your intention, like, I'm going to pick a car to build and race, or is this just like you just need a cool high school car? Uh, no, you know, cool high school car. You know, people, you know, there's guys at school running around in oval windows and, you know, different things, you know, I, I was able to grab onto a 64 and wanted to get it lowered. So my buddy in auto shop lowered the car, you know, I couldn't afford, 
alloys. So I just uh, took the chrome caps off and, you know, painted my drums and, you know, and I started with a 40 horse and a stinger on the, for an exhaust and just, you know, I thought it was fast. You know, I would actually go race some of my other buddies with it down the streets and um, I just stepped up more and more as I'd get beat. I'd go back home and play with it more and come back the next week. Well, I think the I think a Stinger automatically adds fifty horsepower to any Volkswagen as soon as you put it on when you're sixteen years old. <laughs> yeah, it you know it makes you th- sound like you're fast, right? I mean, you make a whole lot of noise, and I think that's that's the progression that everybody goes through, right? I mean, my first car was on Porsche nipple hubcaps, and we pulled Leafs to lower it. It was sitting on the stoppers, and it, it was all about just trying to be slammed and and you know cool looking, and then so. You're in Southern California, which is like the hotbed of VW activity, and you start you, you kind of get the proverbial bug to start racing. Um, now, do you start out street racing and things like that, or do you go right to the track, or how does that evolve? Well, I've always been going to the tracks before I had my driver's license. Uh, worked on the car before I had my driver's license, and finally, when it was time to step it up when i was driving on the street as just a normal you know grocery getter you know trying to be cool and look good for the chicks <laughs> you know it's uh start stepping it up and then you find out where the street races are hanging out you know and i was at you know fast forwarding starting to build some parts for people in high school and meeting people like dave and judy kaywell um you know before i was you know my part-time job was hanging signs at a, a sign company and we went over there and we did a sign right next door to uh, Steve Tim's. It was called the buggy house. And he had this little Fiat spider deal convertible in it. I started learning the history of that car and it was just totally, you know, meeting these people were like icons to me. They were, you know, I, I could see them in the magazines and they were real people and they, you know, they would talk to you and you could hang out and, you know, start learning the scene. And then I started going to the, the street races and just kind of hung out there, you know, with a plan in mind to, to be part of that scene. But um, not until I got my um, nitrous oxide kit, I knew that I could actually start hanging with some of these guys. And we did some serious, serious racing uh, for lots of money. Um, to this day, it's still a lot of money to me. But uh, now on this is on the streets. Yes, we we would actually tow to the street, you know, tow our cars, you know, a block away or whatever on tow bars and, and our little Toyota mini cab pickup truck. And uh, we'd drive them in like street cars and, you know, hidden nitrous and, you know, all the stuff. And we used to race. I mean, I, I would, we'd go to uh, Florence and Maine and, and, and Compton. We would go to Lucky's and, you know, that was also in Compton and we'd hang out at, um, shoemaker phoebe you name it we were there and there was places to go we would race sometimes wednesday nights we'd meet over at camelot at carl's jr try to find something it was just like you're fishing you know trying to go out and we're really our main thing was to try to make money and uh you know and if you won you know a thousand bucks or something it definitely went into the car before the next time you came out it just grew from there and um now, who were some of the guys that were out there street racing back in the day, and the VW guys that are around today that were out there in the street races? Well, fortunately, my my two closest guys uh, that were fast and and you know they they actually died doing it, and that's what got me out of it. 
uh, you know, you would see people like Adam Wick at the street races, but he wasn't, he, his car was way over the top. He couldn't no, he couldn't get a race. It wasn't a street car. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, you'd always find these guys that were out there and you still see them today. Um, you know, but you know, Vince Harry, Spoke McClendon, um, you know, several Volkswagen guys, you know, some of them, they probably don't want me to say their name. <laughs> um, you know, and there was, I mean, there's people out there that own VW performance companies now that were out there street racing with me. Now was the whole goal, like it was, was it, it wasn't just VWs, it was muscle cars. Everything would just show up out there or was it just VWs at the time? Oh, no, no, no. We would, our, our, our best victims would be either motorcycles or, uh, the V8 guys. Uh, you know, the, the VW scene, we just got too noticed too fast. Right. So we would actually, you know, I don't know if saying picking on the prey was a, a good thing to say, but you know, V8 guys, they weren't really privy to knowing what actually we could run on the street. I mean, we actually, we had 10 second street cars, which were really, really fast. And that would, that would equate to maybe a nine second V8. We could still beat them on the street. Oh yeah. Well, I, I think part of it, and I don't know if you guys actually marked out a quarter mile, but usually by the time you whole shot a V8 on the street by third gear, they give up because they're chasing so hard that they figure. And I, you know, at least here in Vegas, we used to go to street races. They never had it marked off. It was kind of like to the fourth or fifth light pole. And then by the time you drag race somebody, you know, they'd be, you'd hole shot them so bad with a Volkswagen that they would give up about two thirds of track. And, and really if they stayed in it, they might've come around the top end. Yeah. We had, we had schemes we worked on, you know, if they would, we'd get like one or two cars flying, which meant we got a little head start from behind. We would, uh, you know, find out the guy that was doing the, you know, flashing the, the light, you know, the flashlight to, you know, when they hit the light to go and, they would usually, you know, we, we, we did all our best to get the edge. And, <laughs> hey, we've lost, but we, we won a lot. And now who are the, who are the guys you said that have passed away street racing over there? I know, I know spoke. I've heard the name spoke before. Yeah, no, he was, a he was out of the K well camp and he was the fastest. He actually backed a lot of my races when I couldn't afford to bet. He was the one that was, um, that had no problem throwing down the money. And really? he was actually the one that would let us into the areas where we weren't welcome, you know, because some of these places are, are pretty uh, bad areas to go racing. But we, you know, we kind of had a hall pass with, you know, being connected with him. And then there's Vince Harry. He um, he died uh, street racing. And, um, you know, I carried him to his grave. And, and that's when I said, that's it. Enough's enough. I can't I can't really. It was I was done. You know, I, I've seen grown men out there crying because we took their rent money. I've seen <laughs> I've seen Uzis out pulled out and people, you know, spraying you know with Uzis out in the air trying to spread. You know, people I've had people didn't want to pay, and it was just enough for me. When those guys passed on, it was I was done. Yeah. I decided, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna find a job that I like, and that's my, my whole my whole life. I only wanted a job that I liked, and uh, I got lucky enough at that age too, to get a job over at small car specialties, um, guy named Pro Corky Prosser and Kent Dahlberg that ran that place, gave me a shot, uh, turned into a sponsorship slash employment. 
Um, now we talked about this because I, I when, when I saw you at MP, we talked about you know a little bit. I got a little bit of history from you, and you told me that when I think that's when you got your job, and all you did was narrow beams all day long. I was the narrowing beam master. <laughs> they would give me. Uh, they agreed that they'd give me five dollars a beam, and at the age of probably seventeen at that time. You put five hundred bucks a week in someone's pocket. Yeah, that's good. That's good racing money right there. And you can double that, triple that. Um, you know, and I was doing easily a hundred beams a week. I was I was probably the only guy under twenty rolling around with a jet ski, a full on long bed dually, uh, ATC <laughs> race cars. Um, you know, and a girlfriend. You know, I had a, I had my life was like great. Right, they they dangled that carrot and you just went after it, right? Yes, so. and I worked my tail off. I'd be out there just beaming away. Now, what year? What year is this that you're working at small car? Eighty four, eighty five. See, because I was I was trying to track down the first narrow, like who narrowed the first beam, because you know even when I was building my car, bat one of my first cars that I finished was like nineteen ninety two or 93, it's like even a narrowed beam wasn't super popular. I didn't see it be real popular then. They weren't, I mean, it wasn't until, it may have been, because the, the issue was the spindles, and maybe they just narrowed them like an inch or two, and then once they did the lowered spindles, it put that plate on there, which pushed your wheels out, which then, you know what I mean? So when they were narrowing beams back then, because I don't remember it being really popular until like the late 80s, early 90s, like narrowed beams. Yeah, most of the, most of the beams we did that, that I was doing, I'd say at least eighty percent of them were just beams with dual adjusters, so they'd be stock length beams. And then yeah, I'd say probably twenty percent of them were narrowed, where we would take and uh, back then like a half an inch out of each side, right? And so it'd be narrowed an inch, and then I, I think we narrowed one back then like two two and a half inches each side and found out it wouldn't fit. Uh, played around with a lot of different things back then. Like, I mean, I had, I had money things coming in from every angle. I was, I was cutting beans for money. I was, I was street racing for money. I was actually starting to make a product line. Um, yeah. What was the first product that you made? You said you were making products in high school. Yes. The, the first product I made was an oil filter bracket. It was just for the street car that I needed somewhere to hang my Oberg. So we did that. And then when you, you, know, you morph into Volkswagen, uh, the ra drag racing thing where you want your whole system mounted to your engine. So when you pull it out, it all comes out as one piece. So you did one of those. And then it went to a magneto clamp because that's all we ran back then were mag. You know, did one for a, a Mallory sprint mag and for the, you know, Joe Hunt style. Yeah, I just kept going and I started making more stuff. And when people could see that I could do it, um, and get it done it just started going from there i got my first big uh break uh johnny speed and chrome called me one time and it was back then and we had beepers right i got a page from johnny speed and chrome and i pulled over on the freeway called him <laughs> and they placed i i was in paramount off of uh i think it was 91 in bellflower uh i was out looking for race car parts and i, I pulled over and called them and uh, they wanted to place an order for a hundred ball joint eccentrics, the eccentrics offset eccentrics. Right. I was the first person to ever make those. 
Oh, really? Yeah, and I could stand. I mean, I made those. You know, now a couple companies have copied them and sent them overseas, and and you know, you know those kind of things you took really, really personal back then. You know, it's like how can you copy this? And I've got accused of it too. You know, to this day, I got people, you know, a tranny builder out there thinking I ripped off one of his parts, but all I was doing was making them for one of his competitors. It wasn't like other; it was my product was for them. But right, uh, you know, then we made. Uh, I was the first person to make a, a heavy duty uh, pinion bearing retainer. And um, so those things, when I got those big orders and you would get, you know, a $2,500 check, I mean, it was just like, wow, I, you know, I made it. I'm, I'm big time now. How did you get your experience like machining and, and welding and doing that kind of stuff? Was it just trial by, or you just found a spot they'd give you a chance to use their equipment or how did you get a, access to that stuff? Actually in high school in metal shop, we had a lathe and, and uh, benchtop mill and, and welders and, you know, all the, all the tools. So in high school, you know, the, the combination of driving a Volkswagen to school, being able to pull something off your engine and, and make it better and put it back on. And, uh, you know, and that actually turned into, I would, I literally, there's products I did that I made and I sold them. I made them. I got a grade on it. I'd get, you know, I'd get an A of course, <laughs> and then I would sell it. I would just sell it to them. I said, tell people I'll make more. I'll do more. You know, and, you know, you lower your car down and the things riding heavy duty on ball joints or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're bottoming out. And they need offset, offset eccentrics, you know, just say, well, why can't we just do this? It wasn't like I was limited. It was just, you know, it's it just an open, open mm-hmm. market in your mind to just do whatever you wanted. And so trust me, yeah. I got a wall of shame of things that didn't work out. But, you know, we made a lot of good parts, too. Well, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, an opportunity comes up uh, being a young kid that's into Volkswagens and then you have access to machining equipment. That's like unlocking the door to like guys with a grinder, an angle grinder and a, and a bench vice, you know? And so I think, you know, that, that, so then, cause it really takes, listen, I, I've, I've, I was on a, a lathe one time and I realized after about 12 minutes, I don't have the patience for a lathe. <laughs> And you got to, I think to, to do machining, you've got to have a certain type of temperament and you can wait for the finished product. You know, I'm, I'm really low patience and I want, I'm I'm a kind of now guy, you know what I mean? And so, um, but machining and all that type of stuff and getting into tolerances and those type of things. I mean, did you just naturally take a liking to that? Yeah, it was, it was really, it was fun for me because I could usually see the product in my mind before it was done. And, you know, back then we didn't draw things. You just had to imagine things. You didn't, you didn't get a drawing. You didn't get a print. There was no CAD cam. There's, you know, master cam. There was none of the stuff that I had access or was even available. So you had to picture the part in your mind. What, what is your end result? And when I could see that, uh, let me get the guy off. Yeah, this. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. When I, when I could see that, it was uh, it was easy for me. I I, I mean I don't, I'm not a prodigy of no sort, but I just I, I really could just imagine what I wanted, and and why I wanted it, and, and I wanted products that worked. I wanted to make things that were meaningful, not um, you know just another shiny piece. Now the eccentric ball joint that you now that see, and I'm not I'm I've always been a link pin guy, but the eccentric you're talking about goes on the ball joint to alt to change the angle of the wheel when you lower it. Yeah, it changes like the camber. Um, you, know, you put them on the 
it's you know those things will bottom out so they need more travel and then that morphed into actually a lowered ball joint also yeah so we did one thing and you say okay well now the limiting factor is the ball joint we were doing thousands and thousands of lowered ball joints man you know by hand we'd we'd machine the cap off pop the ball out open the the travel slot a lot more put them back together and tack weld them on and uh you know now you know china they they manufacture them that way now i mean that's like more probably the most popular one but i was you know i got a big piece of that pie and just you know not i, I didn't make it thinking of a market i just thought of hey this is needed and and that's how i approached it you know and and then you know after i got that big break with johnny's you know the god of all gods called me one time and it was gene bird really he says hey i heard you make this and I, you know this this chromoly bearing tanners and he was he would buy as many as i could make you know and but i had so many different things i wanted to make i just couldn't do everything but they purchased a lot and you know and then small cars like hey you know you work here you should be selling us this stuff and you know then he started learning about business you know you should sell this guy you shouldn't do this for that guy and it was i wasn't like that i wanted everybody to have right it. you know i wasn't thinking of a, a, a wholesalers or retailers or things like that it was just you know you saw a need you wanted to fill it and you thought like i'll just make it man I'll, it's for the good of the whole community right yeah and i didn't I didn't understand dealers and, and things like that. So I, I went jeans way of just selling to anybody who wants to buy it, whoever can walk in and pay for it, sell it. And that's what I did. Yeah, I didn't have a, you, a dealer only like what location you in. You can only buy from this guy or that guy. I didn't, I, I didn't do that. I didn't favor that at the time. So yeah, it's just a, it's a different business model, more for a small business, small business owner. That's just making one-off parts or limited production runs for the need. Mm-hmm. So what is, so Johnny's placed their first order with you and you see this check for 2,500 bucks, which is probably a huge check to you at the time. What do you, what's the first thing you do when you, when like, when that asserts to you, like, you know what, I've got something people want and now this check's going to help me get to the next level with this. What's the next thing you start pursuing? Well, when I had that cash in hand, $1,500 of it went into the uh, heads up race. Uh, <laughs> The airport in Fullerton. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I doubled it up. It was. And who'd you? Who did you race for? What for fifteen hundred dollars? What'd you race? It was a Cowie, a triple Kawasaki, with the, the triple boys we called them. And yeah, so it's, you know, so it, we did. I, I got lucky a lot, and and uh, you know, some people say you create your own luck, but you know, things happen, and and we made, you know, we did good, and I'd turn around and take that money, and you know. But at that time, you buy another set of 48s. And I think I was probably one of only a few guys in Orange County at the time that had like four sets of 48s, whatever. You know, you just you just buy it and you invest back into what you're doing. And then I went to um, my very first machine I bought, I paid cash for a company called VDS. It was a blower drive service. Yeah, you know, I, I met them through a guy named Al Hoffman that I would see at the Winter Nationals or World Finals. And he was sponsored by them and I went over there and got introduced and I bought a lathe from him, you know? And, uh, so, you know, we get that lathe put over there and I'm starting to whittle my own parts on my own machines now. So I can go in there 24 seven. And then, uh, you know, then I've been, my, my buddy, Robert Cow sold me my second machine and it was a mill. You know, I used to work for him. He had a car called Beetlejuice 
I remember that car. Yeah, and uh, Robert Kaus, I actually live probably two miles from the guy right now. It's, it's great times, you know, and then just stumbled into a business with Ron Loomis Racing and Robert Kaus. Robert had the forklift company that I helped him out with. Ron's just at the same time starting his chassis company, and I'm starting JC. And, um, you know, it was kind of like we could do it all. I was building engines. Uh, Ron was building chassis, and you know, Robert was the first turbo pan slash chassis. I was the first pro stock car to get built out of Loomis, and uh, yeah, when, a lot of success. You know, and then you move it over. You know, you, like I said, my friends they when they passed away, it was I'm doing this full time racing. I'm gonna go, I want to go drag race at a drag strip, and um, never been back to a drag race ever since, or to a street race ever since. It's, it's, I just didn't do it. Pro stock and pro sedan. What's the difference? Well, absolutely nothing. Pro sedan was um, really the brainchild of Mitch Evenson, which is the guy that lived up in Napa Valley. He started a circuit called uh, Pro Sedan, and he had a point series, and we ran that. And then Bill Taylor, as that kind of went away, the next year Bill Taylor started Pro Stock, the PRA. And I think the board members back then were Bill Duncan of Engine Machine Service, Bill Taylor of Taco slash uh, Bug Pack, and um, some other guys were on there. And they, the uh, at the time, I had an, a Fiat X19 following in the, the steps of Steve 10s. I wanted to run a Fiat. And, um, you know, I'm already a couple race cars deep already. And... He wouldn't let that car, if we weighed the same, I thought they'd let us race in that class. And uh, he wouldn't let us race in there. So that's it. I stripped the X19 and I took all the struts and everything out of it and built the post stock car. You know, had Loomis build the chassis and, you know, the whole thing. And pro stock is a naturally aspirated class? Naturally aspirated. At the time, it was eight and a half pounds a cubic inch. And it was, you know, any bore was allowed. And we only knew of 94 bore at the right. Pistons. And we were putting, you know, big crank stuff back then were 84s. And uh, just uh, gasoline naturally aspirated, four-speed, clutch, you know. And, and there, was, there was a rule book. They had a rule book written. And, and we toured, I mean, from here to Texas to Seattle, uh, all over. Now- who were the guys that you were slugging it out with in the early days over there? Early days was definitely Mitch Evenson. Um, he had the record at a 1040 at the time. And the hardest guy there was ever to beat and that I really got up on the wheel for would be Dean Lowry. That guy would literally pull rabbits out of his hat. And it was just, you know, I got I, I got beat by him more than I beat him, so... Now, Dean Lowry, and he was older, a lot older back then than you guys, right? Yes, he was. He was one of those guys that you know you totally look up to, and you, you know, I, I made a, a point to go down to. It was called, um, forget the casting house where they casted all their stuff, uh, Dino Dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. I, I drove probably sixty miles just to go buy a set of gaskets from him. And it wasn't really to buy the gaskets; it was just I wanted to meet him. Yeah. And I met him. I met Ken Lowry, his brother. And, um, you know, started look, finding out about four inch bore stuff and started learning more about that. And then the race wars to the nine second zone was on. It was, um, 
you know, we had, we all had to come up with something and I, I ended up going the scat case route and, uh, Dean was with obviously the ARPM route and we, we slugged it out a lot. It was fun. Now I, I was talking to a, a mutual friend of ours earlier and, and he told me there was an experience that you guys had in Denver where, um, where he showed up and kind of, cause you guys, your cars are pretty on par. Like everybody's cars are pretty equal at the time when you guys are racing as far as bore stroke carburetor. And it really came down to like the tuning and, and and he said he showed up in Denver and really surprised you with something new that he was working on. Well, the guy that the guy that set me back a lot was uh, Adam Wick. Had uh, I don't think I ever raced Dean up there on the mountain, but Adam came out with this weird plenum <laughs> with a uh, you know. I, remember, I was the very first aspirated Volkswagen to go in the tens at Denver and and people were shocked. I raced Fitch Evenson in the final and I won a 1092 or something like that. It was the first aspirated Volkswagen car ever to go in the, in the 10 second zone. Well, you know, just a year later we roll up and I'm thinking I'm, you know, I'm the man. I'm, I'm, I got this. I know the tune up. I know what to lean out. I know what to do to the timing. I know my gear stacks, right. I, you know, I'm ready to go. I pop off like a, 1080 something and you know hey i went the right direction and this guy comes out and he runs a 1045 and i'm like what the hell man and i you know and i knew what that meant at sea level that means we were all in trouble all of us <laughs> nothing we could there wasn't an amount of money you know he was going to change history you know let the bw scene because we're, we're all going to have to have that intake system and uh it didn't pan out like that for him but we, it really worried a lot of us now what now in that when they're on par racing like it gets so competitive that guys are at home working on like trying to some kind of like a different intake plenum or this or that and then what happens is it become like kind of an argument in the class of like no you can't you can i mean how does that because i see a lot of that in like the real street stuff today where everybody's kind of back and forth and like they're supposed to be this le there's a level playing field but kind of the smart guys figure out okay well you didn't say you can't do that so i'm doing that you know what i mean yeah it's uh there's always been innovators out there and you know when super street happened it was stock stud pattern only you have to have a stock stud pattern because they felt you could only put a 94 bore in there well leave it to me i went out there and dial pinned my cylinders to my block and made it a 96.7 and ran great for years. I mean, I was, those were the wars with Gary Berg in the Super Street days. You know, there's pro stock days that all happen. It morphed into then there were Super Street days. You know, and now right now I'm doing a lot of stuff with uh, the NHRA scene as far as Super Stock. And you know, I got guys out there that are beating me. You know, their cars are hauling ass too. But I look at it and it's a lot of my parts are on there. So it's like, you know, it's a win-win for myself. But. Now with the NHRA, like obviously the PRA, I mean, a lot of the VW racing, it, it's not a big enough. I mean, I don't know if this is the case. I'm assuming it's not a big enough scene to support itself, which is why you guys kind of go into the NHRA, which is really, you guys are showing up in NHRA classes where you're, you're, we're, we, the VW community are drag racing with antiquated technology, trying to keep up with other guys, or is it all every? Do they have something that levels that in the NHRA class, or is there a VW specific NHRA class? There's a there's a class called SSBX that 
we we run in a super stock and it, it, it's all a bracket race uh-huh. it's, it's a big bracket race um but you're out there getting exposure at a huge higher level um you know meeting new people and 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 the sponsors get that but the that's the question on the on the super stock you know yes we use data loggers we we get to read cylinder temps air fuel ratios uh g meters all that stuff and we, and we actually learn a lot from those however when you race up against another volkswagen there's no breakout it's heads up so you got to have a car that's pretty much all an ass but it's a bracket car so you know when when i line up or my, my daughter now when she lines up with somebody and it's a camaro or something she just puts her dial in on there and she's doing good um we've gone rounds before uh and it's fun you know we it's a you're out there racing with your family for four days not just you know rolling on a saturday night get up race sunday and go home you know so it's it's just a different thing. It's just turning the page, going to another style of racing. But it's always been Volkswagen. And how many VWs race in that SSVX class? I only think there's probably in the nation, um, Volkswagen-wise, probably maybe 20 cars in the nation. However, we're out there mixing up with the big guys, you know, the, the Camaros, the Chevys, the Dodges. And what's what? What is the so? What are you guys running right now in the SSVX class? Uh, she she runs a lot. Probably around ten fifties is her most common run. Uh, we had the record um, earlier last year, and then it got taken away. And I don't know if it was because of the the two year. Every two years, they go back to a minimum. Mm-hmm. But uh, then we got outran by uh, an old friend of mine, and they got it now. And I think it's down to like a 1039 or something like maybe a 1042 in the quarter mile and now the limitations on this class are displacement naturally aspirated and weight 10 and a half pounds a cubic inch we can only run a 44 millimeter intake valve you have to have vw casted heads you have to have a vw tranny case and a vw engine case flat tap at cam only a lot of this you know it's crazy for like the super street or super uh, pro stock days. It was wide open, you know, and it was really the man with the most time and money was doing the best, you know, pretty much. Now it's, you know, you got to really, the five angle valve jobs, the the flow bench hours, the, the dyno hours, all this stuff. It's a whole different world now. And it's just evolved, you know, it's just a lot more competitive. And, and when you bring that up, let's say you're like you're seriously competitively drag racing. The difference between a three angle and a five angle valve job makes what difference at, at in a quarter mile? I mean, is it that big a difference? Well, yeah, back cutting the valves and all the other stuff, and then uh, the new technology of the computerized valve job machines. You know, you can see from a good valve job to a bad valve job, you can see ten horsepower. Really? Yeah, you're only talking two horsepower a cylinder, right? Two and two. Yeah. But it wasn't, oh, if I spend this much money, I'm going to pick up this much power. That Those days, now it's you've got to have the best cranks or you've got to have the best rods and pistons and you better do flow bench testing. And, you know, there's CNC porting now. It's a lot of, a lot of different things have changed. Um, you know, but it's, uh, I'm just glad that I was part of not really paving the road, but getting on that walkway that people like Steve Timms and Dean Lowry and Gene Berg and those those type of people were, were setting the pace. 
Well, I, I definitely think in our generation, you've, you've established that name with JC. Like you've established the name of a guy who made parts. Not only did you make parts, but you went out there and backed up what they did. You were a racer and a, and a, and a manufacturer, you know, which I think is the reason why you ended up getting acquired by MP. Um, and that took place, that, that took place a couple years ago. And I don't want to jump to that just yet. Cause I want, I want to get to that because that's another p- part of the story by itself, but getting back to the, the drag racing aspect, I did want to ask a question about, you know, obviously bringing your daughter in it. I definitely love to do a podcast separately with her just about her experience of drag racing. But from your standpoint of being a racer and then trying to teach your daughter to drive a car. Now, did she always drive a car? Did she start off in like the drag, the mini dragster stuff like that? Or no, it was just kind of like a, I mean, that transition happened from you to her at what point? And then how, how hard was it to, you know, cause sometimes you just got to have a natural knack for things. Right. Right. Yeah. I, when I knew that it was, it was going to evolve there was when I would be at the, the bug ends or the Sacramento races and you know, we'd, we'd load the whole family in the car and we'd go out there and it would be six in the morning. It's still dark sometimes. And my wife and kids would still want to sleep in the truck while we're unloading the car. And it was my daughter. Uh, she was the only one that would get out there, knew how to do the wheelie bars, knew how to pull the deck lid. And, you know, she'd, she'd come back at the end of the day and her hands would be dirty. I mean, she, none of this was handed to her. I was never thinking that she would be taking over the right. driver. Uh, you know, because in my mind, I'm the best driver. and But that's how we all think, you know. Mm-hmm. And, Gary's the best driver. Adam's the best driver. We all think the same way, but um, she she was just the one that put in the time. And I went to go purchase this car from a friend of mine. His name's Mark Prothero, and it's a, it's a Loomis built Super Street slash SSBX car. And she got in the car before I even even paid. I even paid for it. And she goes, "I'm going to drive this car one day." And I'm like, "Yeah, cool, yeah, you know." And it just kept going where she was really chomping the bit. And I really didn't want to put her in there. I was, you know, I've crashed several race cars, you know, and learned a lot what not to do. Right. I'm a teacher. So I put her in this class called Powder Puff. And I knew that it took practice. So we went to Irwindale a couple of weeks prior to the race on Thursday nights and, you know, taught her about cutting lights and what it means and, and, and how it equates to, you can still run slower and win the race with, you know, the whole race starts on the starting line and uh, consistency and repeating and, you know, and now it got to, or we under our first race, I just told her, I said, you know, you're going to lose a lot of races. It takes a long time to get to where you, you win. Mm-hmm. She wins the first race. <laughs> she won the whole event in, in powder puff. And I'm like, man, that's crazy. And it was it. She was hooked from there. So I got in a, yeah, I got in this class called Pro Gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's got to have the same heads. It comes from um, Rick Thomason over at CB Performance, uh, a great friend of mine. And um, they came up with this class where everybody's, if you buy these heads, you can race this class. You can only have this size engine. It has to be an 84 by 94. So a bunch of guys, I mean, it, it was like, 16 guys would show up and uh i got into a points battle and um my daughter was racing at the time i bought her a little chassis car 
and uh, but I was again still in powder puff, the all the all women's class, and it got to a point where when I realized I was in trouble was when she asked me about tuning something on her car because you know, it was getting warmer in the day, but I was the next round that I was going to be in was going to be the difference of winning the championship or losing it. And so I put her off and she lost her round and it was because I neglected to take care of what she was asking me. And I won and I won the championship. But then after that, you kind of reflect on what happened and it's just, it was just too hard for me to run two cars. It was just, I've proven everything that I could prove. I, people took me as a threat. Sometimes I would win the race before the, the the light ever dropped. I mean, some people were intimidated, but the guy that I was having the hardest time getting a grip under was a, a guy named Tony Klink, uh, M45 up there in Auburn. And that guy's car, he was hooked up with a guy, Valero, I think at one time. And he's must've picked up on something because he was kicking our ass. And, uh, you know, I just went more rounds that year. That's the only reason I won. You know, we, he won a few races. I won a few races, and we were going back and forth a lot. But that's when I decided, you know, if I'm going to do this, if she wants to continue, then I'll just put her in the car. And, and I'll tell you what, it was the best thing I've ever done for the fact that I'm still smiling. If we lose first round, I still got a smile on my face. I'm happy. Um, you know, she's safe. The car's safe. And, um, you know, we just we lived the race another day. You know, yeah. You've have you ever been a turbo guy, or you've always been an NA guy? No, I built turbo guy. I, I built turbo engines for uh, some guys, um, several of them. But I'm always into uh, the great equalizer, which is carburetors. You know, everybody's got a shot at it. You know, if you put a decent set of heads on there, it's the it's really a tuner's race, and then whoever's tuning it, you got to find someone just as good to drive it, and and it's a package deal to where it just seemed really competitive. You know, when you're out there, you know, in the turbo class and you're running eight fifties and everybody else is running nine forties, what are you really doing? You know? Right. You know, I, I always shared everything I ever learned pretty much went to market. Every, everything I, I came up with, I shared it with everybody. And it was just, it's more of a, you got to have people that, don't get frustrated. You know, there's some, I've seen people come and go where no one was helping them and they just get out of it. Yeah. You know, I do my best to help anybody and everybody. I don't care if they're, I'm going to, I mean, there was a guy, um, David Stark, cool guy, really, really super nice guy. He worked for me for many, many years. And then he, um, you know, some people call it jumping camp or whatever, but he moved on to another guy. Um, and also as a friend of mine for a long, long time and, and still is a good acquaintance as Sean Gears, he went over and worked for him, but he was doing like part-time building engines and part-time working at the amusement park. And, um, he broke down and, and he was like my, my toughest competition. I pulled it, I pulled out my spare engine and started ripping parts off it and gave them to him. You know, I just... You gotta have people to race. You gotta yeah. put on a show. People are coming there to see it. Um, you know, we're, life's too short to hold any grudges. And I, you know, I help out any fellow racer. 
Now, in order to spur the racing class, right? Like we see in the off-road class, they st- like the class 11 cars have gone through the roof because they're, they're supposed to be cost-effective cars right now. Obviously, we know there's no such thing as cheap racing, right? But I do remember there's, there's been a couple times when they've tried to, they tried to do like a, a Cadrone class. And then they tried to do like a super, was it a super 1600 class? And then like every time they start those classes, it starts out to the, the premise is like, Hey, here's a really affordable class. Let's do this. And then the class gets blown out on the back end by someone who just goes crazy over, you know, over the speed, or it just gets too expensive because the cars just start running so fast. What, what do you think is, what do you think would be like the magic pill to make to get drag racing so popular because there's just so many different, you know, I was thinking about it as, as, as you were talking about, you know, the CB performance specific head class. And I thought, so in that, in that specific class, if the car is limited and everybody's in the same, on the same level, it comes down to tuning and also like the car, the suspension on the car probably makes a, a pretty big difference. I mean, the way it hooks and goes and, and a lot of those things, I mean, what what is the what do you think if you could come up with something that would really make drag racing just take off with so many people? Well, I don't think there's a magic pill for it. Uh, you know, back in the day when we were doing pro stock, it wasn't that expensive. You know, you could build a complete drag car for twelve, thirteen thousand dollars. You know, you'd just do a lot of the work. You know, that won't even get you a long block in heads up racing anymore. Wow, uh, it's uh. You know, and Super Street got proposed for, you know, they got to be chassis or uh, pan cars and factory suspensions and things like that. And that, cl- that class is really meant to be affordable to people, you know, but then you got people like, you know, Gene Berg and, and, and myself and uh, other people, you know, that are involved in it that end up buying bigger, badder and faster and lighter parts and it just there's really no limiting factor on 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 a cost you know you you know some people talk about claimer engines where someone could buy your engine from you if they wanted you know to keep the cost down but it it ain't gonna work it's um you know it's like it's just a an evolution uh people in that real street class right now yeah i mean these freaking cars are pump gas whatever compression you could run on pump gas is up to you they're uh, and they're hauling ass. They're 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 fast and you know those cars. That's got to be a minimum money wise of twenty five thousand dollar investment just to try to even hang with any of those top not top notch guys. Yeah. You know, so it's you just got to get enough people that are um, you know that are financially set to do it and have a drive to do it and want to work on it and, and be part of it. It's just, um, there's no magic into doing it. It's just, it's cubic dollars and cubic inches. You know, it's just, uh, from your opinion, um, somebody wants to get into racing and they want to get into it and they've got a little bit of money to put into it. Cause everything costs a little bit of money, right? What would be, what would be the angle they approach it to have the most fun? I mean, is it just bracket race what you've got or, Drag racer at heart. If you could stick to bracket racing, and um, you know something that you can just race, put away, tinker with it whenever you got time. Because we all have careers and we all have jobs, and you know we got to pay, pay for life. And 
And uh, it's, you know, so many people I've seen, you know, that have given up marriages or families or whatever to chase this racing thing. It was, it's just too much, you know. So I'd stick to bracket racing, you know. And if you're really thinking about going heads up class, you know, and, and you think you're ready for it, jump into it and make the calls to and, and figure out the right team of people you want to associate yourself with. And, you know, or, you know, there's there's people out there that I've never even met before that come out with stuff and I'm like, oh, man, wow, that is awesome. You know, that some people are out there and it's just the next generation of people that are coming out with bitch and stuff, you know, that I would never even thought of. Yeah. So what do you think, you know, it's funny because they have, you know, open source software, right? Where everybody, the community can just upgrade it and change it and, and modify it, which is like Apple's platform and the, the editing software that I do. But the VW world is like open source platform for modifications. It's like once one guy does something, now the community breaks through that technological barrier, you know? And so I think it's I think it's pretty cool because it's it's so grassroots in the VW world. You know, everybody, I mean, you included, and everybody, so many people that have been in icons in the industry have started just like a guy who wanted to go racing. You know, now what do you, in your opinion, in the in the years you've been involved in drag racing, what has been the single biggest development in your opinion that's changed the that changed the game? Like, oh, when they started doing this, everything changed. Yeah, there's. The one thing that I was involved with and, and Berg was involved with, we called the carb wars. And around the same time, you know, myself and, uh, and a buddy of mine, Brent Robinson, were coming up with a carburetor. And, you know, and this all really, it, it's kind of a funny story because getting my, my ass handed to me on a silver platter in Denver by Adam Wick, really, and then him going to sea level and not running very good. I learned from that. I learned from his mistake and, you know, you've got to have fuel capacity in these carburetors and, and he, that's where he messed up on. Um, and he know he knows that he knows it. And with the carburetors now, he would be a force to reckon with no doubt that, um, we needed more air. We had to have more air and we were kind of limited on, you know, tie valves and springs and things like that. It was always the carburetor that was holding us back. And so, I came up with the idea of building the Terminator carburetor, um, mm -hmm. and Berg at the same time came out with building the Berg 58, and um, records were falling right and left. And we both came out with our carburetors. I mean, it would go, our records would drop from race to race, depending on the quality of air that we had, we had run into that day. I mean, Gary, I mean, I still remember to this day telling Gene, they're they're gonna run 1040s one day. They're gonna run 1040s. These cars are going there, and he said never happened. Probably it never happened. And then a year later, the record went from a 1055 to a 1050 to a 1045 to a 1040 to a 39 to a 37. It just kept going, and it was it was the carburetors that were were doing it, and we were handing records back and forth. You know, I'd have it in Seattle, and then a week later, two weeks later, Gary'd have it in Sacramento, and um that was a big uh proud moment for to be part of that like i i felt that i had something to do with changing the industry as far as performance wise right that, that was my that was my biggest one but it wasn't just me there's other teams out other people out there building stuff too and the one you did the the name of the carb that you built specifically you you did the terminators 
Yeah, so I did the Terminators, and um, Berg had the Berg 58s, and we, we called ours the 62s. It's really a like a 60-millimeter throttle plate, but a 65-millimeter uh, velocity stack, so we just called them 62s because it kind of rhymed with 52, yeah. And so you did, so you, so that carburetor was a complete new cast machine, like a, not a cast, but a billet machine carburetor. No, that was a, that was an investment molded cast steel, a high quality aluminum. It wasn't a sand cast. It had an enlarged float bowl, which tripled the fuel capacity in the car before you even left the starting line in the float bowl. Um, bigger Venturis, you know, up to 55 millimeter Venturis. You know, and it took all Weber components. You know, it took all the Weber, the plungers, the springs, the can, you know, a lot of different things that worked on it. And um, it was it was a game changer, without a doubt. You know, that was, it's no different than when Dean Lowry came out with the Superflow. That was a game changer back then, you know. And then when Autocraft came out with Roller Rockers and then Potter, you know, it, it hasn't stopped. Potter's come out with these blocks and you got that guy in Brazil making billet everything in his it's just and these cars are making crazy horsepower it's just just never stops but that would be the one i'd say that i felt i had something to do with some change with and how many how many sets of terminators do you think were manufactured well i would i would think you probably know how many were manufactured well i don't i i, I didn't have the time have enough data to document how many we sold i i was on like a five-year spree and it you know i put kids through college with it we sold a lot of them i mean we were getting 100 castings at a time and you know from i think it was from 93 to 98 it was like five years that i was i was carbureted out it was just every day i I always had orders and just i couldn't i couldn't feed the world fast enough i wasn't I came up with something that I couldn't manufacture fast enough. It just wasn't, um, I created a monster, that type of deal. And, you know, it kind of burned me out. I wanted to make new things and, new, you know, stuff. And and my buddy Sean made me an offer and um, on it because I was actually hiring him to help me put them together. Um, you know, and at the time, it we sold, we sold that to my buddy and I went and bought a house. Now, this is Sean... Sean Gears. So now Sean Sean Gears, he he was a fellow drag racer that evolved into like now he's kind of doing his own thing. And so he um you know, he's got he he has the the Gears terminators he calls them. Mm-hmm. And I guess he's doing pretty good with those and um I mean, it's interesting to a guy like me thinking, you know, I have my limited purview of how big the drag racing scene is. But if you're still selling Terminators and stuff like that, someone's buying them, and there's obviously that many people racing around the world with those carburetor castings. You know what I mean? I think we sold more carburetors to Mazda guys. Oh, really? Mazda. Even though they'd only buy, I I believe, more of them, more Mazda people are buying them than Volkswagen people. But but they just buy one. Yeah, and they they were still probably more of them went to that, that industry. That's crazy. Well, that, and that's a, that's another, the, you know, the Winkle market's a huge market for these rotary guys, right? That's what they're putting them on is the rotaries. 
No, that's 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 incredible. So so now let's talk about in the last five years, three to five years, you're there just cranking away at JC, making your new parts and pieces, and things are coming out, and you're hitting the market fairly consistently with new product line, right? Just you've got your machining, you're you're kind of just plugging away at it. How does the whole Impy deal come about, and then you end up going over to Impy? Well, you you fast forward from the eighties to the nineties into the two thousands, it was, you know, you're talking 30 years of doing this and, you know, you, you built up a machine shop full of CNC machine. Um, you know, I was paying cash for everything. I was just going for it and, and it was a good ride. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a 30 years of a blast. And then right out of the blue, I mean, I had no intentions of, of having a lifestyle change. I got a phone call. Yeah, it's pretty much how it started, and I just blew it off. I'm like, no, you, you know, and they made me an offer, and I turned it down. And it was just, I wasn't just ready. Oh, it wasn't because of them. It was, you know, I had a lot of good friends in the industry, you know, Pat Downs and Kevin over there at CB, um, Rick Thomason. I had uh, Greg Model Mug over at Vita Parts Unlimited before it got changed to Pierside. Um, I had a lot of good friends that I was selling volume to. And so I was, I had a great time doing it. I mean, I, I'd do it seven days a week and I, I, you know, I, I had my fun there also, you know, I had my fish tanks and my birds and my dogs and they go to work with me. And, you know, I had, I just had a good vibe over there that I enjoyed. So I wasn't yeah, really yeah. good. And then, um, they made me an offer and I kind of just laughed at it. And I was over dinner. I was talking to my wife. And um, she said, well, just think if you sold to them, what that's going to do to your, you know, your health, your no more stress, no more nail biting, no more checkbook chasing, no more, you know, this could change our lives. And I said, well, yeah, but, it'll, you know, it's not forever. And she goes, she, I mean, she said it and it was like, oh, she goes, double it. Um, tell me you want more, double it. And, and they say, no, fine. Let's walk away. And. You know, I I met these guys. I you know we had some sit downs. This was an overnight deal. This took nine months. Sure, you know, sure. They were, they were going back and forth, back and forth, and um, they made an offer to me that I couldn't refuse. And but the deal was, I wasn't. It wasn't the money. It really wasn't the money. It was an opportunity to have capital, to have somebody that was going to back you. Um, to let you make new things that I wanted to make and, you know, materials going sky high. And it was just like, you know what? I wouldn't mind working five days a week. got to remember, I didn't see a Monday night football game for 30 years. <laughs> yeah. I work until seven, eight, nine at night, every night, you know, I, it, really, I, I never, I didn't get to watch it. I always have to read about it or, or, or watch the news or something. Um, and, they wanted they wanted to uh, acquire the company, and I said uh, the main thing was in the deal was you have to take my employees. My employees are the most important thing to me. You know, my one employee was with me for 26 years, and the other one was with me for 19. And these this is a team. This is a family, and these guys really put me on the map. You know, it wasn't this just wasn't all me. They sure. were a team of people, and. I said, and they're guaranteed employment. They, they got to be guaranteed if this deal won't work. And they agreed. 
and they gave him a raise. They gave him health care. They gave him everything that I always wanted to provide at a high level, you know. Right. And, you know, oh, I got to go pay for this. I got to pay for that. You know, it's just like, uh, it's just good. Yeah, you do it for a long time, you know. Yeah, as a bit as a business owner, check comes in, checks go out. <laughs> That's kind of, you. It's like you watch a, a a river of money go by. Yeah, my buddy Terry Manton, um, that I've known a long time, he had told me he goes, yeah, it just gets tired to chase a checkbook, and I really never thought of it like that. I just thought it was, you know, I'm I'm enjoying this, but you know, once he said that, I kind of realized, yeah, you're always trying to get money in so you can get it out. And you, and your thought process is like, if they buy me, then I can just focus on, cause I thought of it when I, well, you know, I interviewed, I interviewed Phil or PK when he when he did that. And I said, you know, it's a smart thing to do because the VW guys are the ones that constantly push the enthusiasts who have the small business are the ones that constantly push the hobby. And I said, if you could get the brain trust of those guys that do all the development and they don't have to worry about covering payroll on Friday and they don't have to worry about you know, going and collecting this or paying that vendor, doing that kind of stuff. And they can focus on what they do best. I mean, it's got to be like, you know, a, a blank slate and you're free to do whatever you want. I mean, it seems, it's got to seem like the dream opportunity for you. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, PK was the one that actually convinced me, you know, cause I was, like I said, it took a while to make this thing happen. I wasn't, I was on the fence for a long time. And, uh, he said, look at me. He goes, I'm telling you straight up. He goes, I, I, could, I guarantee on my life that what you're requesting will do it. And they did. MP did everything they promised they'd ever do for me. You know, and um, I, I got, I, I went there. We did the deal. Um, I actually told them the, before the deal got done, I, I said, I'm going to go talk to my guys. And if my guys said no, they didn't want to do it, I wasn't going to do it. And so I sat him down, went to a lunch. I sat him down. I said, hey, let's talk. And we spent about two hours going over it. And they both said, yeah, let's do it. You know, hey, you know, you're going to get a raise. You're going to get this. You got benefits. You got vacation. You know, the stuff right. hang to the level that they needed. You know, we're talking these guys, these people have wives. They have kids, you know, and mm -hmm. they, they're, they're relying on me. And it's a big pressure, you know. Yeah. Small business owner. And. Empy laid down a package that we just could not refuse. And so we did it. You know, we, we, uh, we merged, we announced it at the, uh, European bug in yep. three years ago. And, uh, my contract with them was a three year, no matter how good or how bad it got, I, I had to stay there for three years. You know, I did. And it was, you know, I, I do what I say. I say what I do. Um, I made, I was there and responsible, I think it's 23 new products we put in their catalog. Oh, wow. 23, 23 new products? Yeah, 23 new products. And the last one was the biggest one. Um, and by no means was it an easy project. You know, I wanted to build a billet carburetor, you know, billet yeah. body out of a chunk of aluminum. Um, and we did that. And it was, it was because of MP. MP allowed me the freedom to um, go out there and, and, you know, make, you know, they, they helped me believe in myself as far as, you know, I could see this thing coming through and it took some time and we did it. And, uh, you know, this, I knew they would run, but seeing the smile on, you know, a CEO's face or, 
you know, the purchasing agent or some, you know, the big wig managers down there in the dino room. And you, you turn the key and the thing starts and they're just like, holy smokes. You couldn't believe it, you know? And, yeah. Uh, it's a, it came out to be a great pro you know, cause I've done the Terminator deal. Um, I've done, you know, that was 20 something years ago. I I've done the, um, you know, I've, I think I've done more 51.5 or 52 millimeter carburetors than anybody on planet Earth. I mean, I've done so many of them. And, you know, I knew that the next level would be nobody's ever done this, an IDA style billet carburetor, 100%. It takes IDA shaft bearings, IDA shafts, all the Weber components. And it's a, it's a high quality. It's everything I always wanted to do to upgrade the game. And uh, it came out great. I, I, I pat myself on the back along with a few other people in, in the in the uh, engineering department and um, made it happen, you know. And I stuck it I stuck it out. I just wanted to make sure that that got done, and it it got done because of Empty. Yeah, well, no question. I mean, you know, especially when you used to talk to PK. PK had a vision of what kind of where he wanted to take it because he, you know, with the experience that he had, um, you know, looking at the VW industry, seeing it's it's a bunch of small shops that are really making the waves and it's such a huge market but it's like you just can't bring it all together you know what i mean and and by being able to you know i thought when he told me the plans that he had about buying you know all you know six seven companies and bringing them under one roof i thought like man if they could do that what a powerhouse you know like what a a design and development group and 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 really turning things out to market now in contrast to that there's also the experience of working corporate versus being on yourself. And so we talked a little bit about that and, and about some of, some of the stuff that kind of makes things go a little slower on a corporate standpoint is now everything's become legal and now everything's got to go through lawyers and all that stuff before it hits the street versus in the VW world. You know, it's a, it's a little faster turnaround time. Like, right, you make some, you make some, uh, some ball joint offset plates for ball joints, and they're out to mark the first sets out to market. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the power, the power of the internet. You know, when I, I would make stuff, it'd be instantly up. I could be have it on the market the day I finished it. Yeah, be selling them. You know, and the, the the you know PayPal or Visa Master, all this stuff. It's it's evolved and it's changed. You know, when I started they'd have to mail you a cashier's check from the post office and everything just right. took more time. Things sped up and working at a pace that I really liked. And then, you know, going into the corporate world, yeah, I remember I had no experience with that. Zero. I mean, it was, you know, it was learn as I go. And I met a lot of nice people there. A lot of people helped me out and would teach me things. And it just, it's to the point now where you make something, there's other people involved. It's just not, you know, right. Jack doesn't get a free pass. You know, everybody's got to be responsible for things. And um, and it, it was it's the right way to do it. I mean, I learned a lot about business being there. Um, I learned about how to be a manager, um, you know, and running. You know, I never really looked at myself as that before. And, you know, and then you, uh, <laughs> you, know, you get an email. You got to go to this manager's class. And I'm like, manager's class? What is, you know, but. I learned a lot of things that I just wasn't privy to, um, you know, because I was just a street kid making things happen. And, and it's, you know, it's, there's a whole another world out there. Oh yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a contractor and I, in 1999, I'd sold my 
contracting business to a corporate firm out of the Bay Area. And I said, that's where I learned the business of business. Other than that, I was always just a, you know, well, what's everybody else in the industry doing this? All right, well, we're going to do it that way too. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of how it's done. And then, and then I started learning differently, like how to look at a balance sheet, how to look at profit and loss statements, how to look at how to do forecasting and how, you know what I mean? Like all these other aspects. And then on top of that, one of the things, and I only worked corporate for probably four or five years because I was just a little too cowboy for the corporate world. And it's it's tough to get used to because, you know, sometimes when you're in, in a corporate environment and you're working alongside people and and when you're running the show and somebody's not cutting the mustard, it's it's, hey, man, it's Friday. Here's your check. Thanks. But it's not working out. And sometimes when, you know, in my case, when I'd go work corporate, it was like, man, I'm sitting here working with a bunch of people that. I probably wouldn't work with if I had the choice. And so I think I'm going to have to make my exit and go do my own thing because you just, when you just become so used to producing and doing things on your own, there's a, there's, there's something nice about that. And it's a little bit, as much as it's, it's stressful, it's also liberating to some degree. So I, I can, I can sympathize with the, with the, the circumstance with that. So was it, was it kind of a hard decision to, to decide to fold it in? Well, in the beginning, it was like, Hey, can I, can I handle this three years? And every day I went there, there was such, there's so many people, uh, people I'd never even heard of before that were so willing to show me, you know, the computer system, the, how everything works and how you check inventory, how you put it in all these things that I just flew by the wire by, you know, I just, it was things I never realized of. And it was great. I mean, I had a great time there. Um, everybody's nice. PK was wonderful. The guy that, you know, he convinced me to do it and, uh, everything, like I said, everything I, they promised me, they did. And, um, it got to the point where, you know, I, I, I matured more. Um, my, my daughter had a baby. There's things in life that just changes, you know. Yeah. In I think I told you earlier that my foster family was the one that got me. And you know, so you can think about what kind of young, uh, young, a young childhood I had. You know. Right. It was. I didn't want to. I spent 30 years of my life working seven days a week. And I didn't want to miss that with a grandkid. I really didn't. Yeah. Special time. It's a special thing. You know, you want to, you want to be a better grandparent than you were a parent. You want to be a better parent than your parents before. And I think I kept accomplishing that. And it just, it was to the point where when I was into it, like two and a half years thinking, Hey, you know, because I had an option for five. Yeah. You know, and I, in like two and a half years, like, you know what, if, if I can get them to where they can machine these carburetors and I can train somebody how to put them together and leave with an open door, um, I just felt it was just time, you know, it wasn't, I don't have no grand scheme of. Just a personal decision. Yeah, that's really it was. It, it's, it was like nobody there is above somebody or it wasn't like there was a problem where you're button heads or, I mean, dang, they pay me a lot of money. Yeah. They were great to me. And I just felt like if I could leave them in a good place, you know, and it, it, even my, my closing words were, 
you know my cell number. I will, if you guys have any questions, and they've called already, you know, and I'm there. I, I mean, I'll help them, but it's just, I know I can wake up in the morning, get up, water the lawn, play with the dogs, uh, play with the grandbaby. You know, she lives here at home. Go into my garage and play around. Um, you know, I got little, I got machines here and there to tinker with and just, just kind of, I don't know if it's the retired life, but more like, you know, hey, I, I, my, my daughter's got to manage on this car. I could have more time to service it, put the engine in a better situation. Um, you know, I still have access to the dyno. And matter of fact, I have a dyno that I use that's about 100 feet away from me next door. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it was just time, you know. And um, they were really, actually, really supportive of it. And it wasn't like, I told him, I said, I don't want this to be in a bad way. I said, I want everybody to know that um, this isn't like what Empy decided for me. This is just something that I decided. You know, I'll always be there to help them. I met a lot of nice people there, uh, down to the, the president of the company, um, people I knew of before that I know better, and, you know, people that I never knew existed. You know, there's a whole other world out there I was really I was kind of like tunnel vision. I didn't know all these people, and I've, I've I've met a lot and learned a lot. So, so, so let me ask this now that so now that you're you're kind of at a different stage in your life, and you know, you're not chasing things hand to mouth as a business owner, as a fellow business owner, I can share with you that sometimes the stress that having employees does because. Sometimes when you're ready to throw in the bag, you look at your team and you're like, I can't do this to these guys because if it were up to me, I'd shut the doors and walk away today. You know, we, we have sometimes we have those days like that. But now that you're kind of clean slate, you've got you've got a different perspective on life, right? Because you're in a different place. Do you think that you may, because you've got access to machine equipment in your house, that you may stumble across more creativity because you're not bogged down by stress and things to that extent, or maybe just there's no pressure to deliver a product by this deadline or it's more, you're looking at it more from the fun angle again. Yeah, that's, that's part of it too. You know, it's, we, we had to have, we had, we had work schedules. Um, you know, a lot of money would come flowing in for, for material I mean, it's a whole other level that I don't want to be at anymore. I mean, I don't, that's something that I could ever want to get back into. I want to go and have a good time, play on the machines, come up with stuff, not really go to grassroots, but um, manage my time better for myself. You know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm grateful enough for Empy still stuck with my daughter on her sponsorship deal. They're still supporting her. And, it allows me to not have to, you know, you go to work from, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, you get home and you're tired, but I could spend those, that quality time making a new product, making a, a better lifter, making a, a better cam gear, making things that I see wrong with some things. Um, you know, there's, there's just different, it's like you said, I'll have, I'll have more time. I think it's going to open the door for me in the long run, but I don't want to go back to, you know, you, you start something at a really low level and, and I'm kind of starting there again. Kind of, I, you know, and maybe it's different business. because you don't need to. Right. And you I want to enjoy mean? it more. You know? Sure. And I want to be at all the races. I want to I want to do 
I want, I still want to impact things as far as, you know, I don't know if I'll ever come up with something as big as the carburetors mm-hmm. that I've done, but. Well, that's pretty huge. That's pretty, I mean, I'd say it's pretty huge to come up, especially when, when it's like you, you've grown up just a, a young punk kid and you come out at the same time with Gene Berg with these monster carburetors. I mean, that's a pretty, that's kind of a pretty big accomplishment. You know, I wouldn't kind of downplay that too much. I mean, that's a, that's a sizable yeah, I just, impact yeah, I don't think in I the scene. At that level. But I can give you, a, for instance, I had a, a, my neighbor next door. He's like, oh, I can't get this part for my car lift. And it was a, a piece that was broken. I'm like, well, just, just make it. Let's just make it. You know, and he goes, yeah, they don't make this machine anymore. I can't, I don't have it. I said, well, just give it to me. The next day we had his lift running, you know, I just, and it was kind of, it was fun. It was a good project. Didn't make a dime doing it. it you're helping out a good friend. And it was really gratifying to get in there. And, and when he seen that part, it was about six inches long and it, uh, it was a castle nut deal that I did. And it's for an adjustment on the height of it. He He's like, he couldn't believe it. You know, and he's all, you know, if you know how many people want these, I'm like, I don't care. I, don't want, I just want to make one, you know. <laughs> so it's it was fun. You know, you just you come in here, whittle things away. You know, your daughter yells out the back door, hey, dad, come in and let's eat. You know, and I mean, you, you know, how many dinners I've missed with my family through the years. It's just yeah. it's just a lifestyle change. And, and oh. that's all I'm looking for. A hundred percent. And I'm looking and I'm looking forward to your relaxed mind because your mind is it's an it's a constantly looking at things as how to improve it make it better and 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 those types of things so i think it'd be interesting to see over the next few years if there's anything that you're able to come up with because of your freedom of thought your ability to be you know to try stuff and you don't care if it doesn't work cuz you don't got to make rent this month you know what i mean like it's not it's not that and so i'm i'm interested to see the kind of stuff that you're going to be doing. I know that there's a guy here in Vegas that was like, man, I got, I got a spot for an engine builder right now, man. You let him know. <laughs> Adam, Adam told me to say that to you. He said, you got a spot for you as an engine builder. He's got, he's got VW motors stacked up. He can't get to. <laughs> the scary part is he would probably give me a place to live and bring me on. You know, I just, uh, it's just not in my cards right now. But. <laughs> No, but I, you know, th- so I wanted to wrap that up with like maybe a, a basic question because you built a lot of motors in your time, and 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 I'm asking, what is your ideal setup for the like you a guy says because I'm you know you've heard this 400 times by every guy like hey look Jack I just want a a motor that is 10 seconds daily drivable you know but realistically what's your best all around motor setup for like for a guy who wants to drag race sometimes on the weekend, but be streetable, all that type of stuff. What's your ideal combination? If a guy said, look, I want something that's reliable, torquey, runs good, and I won't get embarrassed at the stoplights. Those are the guys you got to sit down and bring them back to reality. Because when you get the guys that want the street car, but they don't want to be beat by their friends, they're always going to have friends going to beat them. I said, either I'll build you a street engine or I'll build you a race engine. And that's it. You don't get both. You know, it's just uh, because they always want to go faster. It, it's a, it's part of nature. So, so what's your best combination for the street? What do you like for the best street motor? Cow, build, building a cow looker, want something cool? I'm really, um, I really like the 8294 combo. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, the, the stroke's not too big to, to work the saddles of the case. The crank's not too big to be flexing. Um, the engine doesn't get too wide 
to fit into the, in, the small early model engine bays. Right. You know, and uh, the 10 seems to, that's about the max with a 10. The, the cylinder 10 will still fit properly. Um, What's your heads of choice? Um, I'll tell you the heads that I like the most that I've seen, there's, there's two companies. And my, my first pick would be the ones from Empy that Anthony Chica, I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a, He's like a master wizard head porter guy. Now he runs the CNC stuff. One of my employees came with us and, and wrote programs for him. And we have a Superflow 600 flow bench, and those flo- those heads flow amazing. Um, if they didn't have them in stock and I had to make the customer happy, my next choice would be the CB. You know, they're they're good they're good heads too. Um, I'm just really privy to the Empy because you know it's kind of like my family over there. And which Empy heads are these? They got the the GTV threes. They actually we have like six different CNC ports, and it's really they all flow really really well. Um, the three is the one that's flowing the most, where it's a easily pump gas easily two hundred horsepower heads. Wow! Just, just it, it, they they are that good, and they're brand new. You know, it's not like you know back in the day where they got to weld the heads and move the plug. All that stuff's done. You know. So, so either CB or MP would really, really nice street heads. And induction, what are you doing? Tall, short manifolds? What what are you doing? Should... Well, sometimes necessity over, oversees the, the power aspect of it. And a lot of these guys want to close their deck lids. So we made a short manifold. Um, I call them the shorty eights. And um, it's it's actually, the, the carb still sits the standard way. It's not turned around backwards. And you can run the big, large billet stacks and still close the deck lid. Um, those are good. But if, for a drag race setup, it's a, a tall manifold. You can't beat that tall manifold for the top end. Big Mon Hour. And, you know, obviously Big Mon Hour turns into better ET. So you like it. You like a 2276 is your is your engine combo with a set of, like, CNC ported heads. Yes. Yes. So, you know, and then obviously, like, an Ingle cam. What kind of cam are you putting on the street? Well, you got the 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 K series that I like the four the, the forty six four forty seven, um, mm-hmm. you know, with a nice set of IDAs or you know some forty eights on there. They sound meaner than a junkyard dog, and they you know you put the keep the compression down, and uh, you know they're only air cooled engines. So to me, the most oil you can put in them, the better. You know, like a an external filter, an external cooler. Uh, MP has what, a, a real nice cooler with an electric fan on it. And what's temp, what what should a guy on the street be looking at for oil temp? I mean, I guess it's obviously where you're taking it from. But they have them with a sender will turn the fan on. I think it's about 180. And you know, stone cold when that oil's cold, it just everything seems to be lagging. You know, it's a, l- a little more uh, viscosity. They're, they're it's a little more thicker. You know, it's thicker and right. You know, so I always tell guys, don't even start tuning your carburetors. Don't even start messing with anything until you bring this thing up to running temp because that's how you're going to drive it yeah some guys like to fire up set the idle but then you know they, they hit the first street light and let it idle and it's it's at 1500 rpm you know and there's a lot of talk about when you said street pump gas what is a realistic compression that you could run the street without getting detonation on 91 octane um it really it really depends on cylinder pressure and the camshafts and lobe centers you run is a is a factor but eight and a half is safe. Um, nine and a half with the right cam is not a problem. Yeah. 
I've heard in this real street class where they still drive in 25 miles that there's guys running over 10 to one. So really the, 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 the lobe separation, uh, lobe centers are, is depending on which way you go, changes cylinder pressure, not mm-hmm. leaking cylinder pressure. And that'll have a lot to do with detonation, um, you know, pre-detonating. So, um, so wor- gas stations they go to, I don't know what gas they use, but worst cam, worst cam for the street that people make mistakes with. What's the worst cam you see people using that, that describe that does what you describe, like that the lobe centers off and all that stuff. And it's got two, you're saying it's too much cylinder pressure. Um, it, it really depends. I mean, if over the counter stuff is usually 107, 108, 109 lobe center. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty safe. It's the guys that, uh, you know, I don't want to put my foot in the mouth, but I mean, grind numbers wise, I get a lot of these street guys that are, I want an FK 98. I'm like, no, you don't, you know, right. there's, there's just people that they want bigger and better, but they, and they can't, they, they can't even take their wife for a ride because it's like on or off like a, a dirt right. bike, you know? So, um, I tend to, I tend to build engines that are, are torque over horsepower, you know? Yeah. And the VZ grinds or the, the the W grinds, like a, a 120 or a 130 cam, um, the smaller FK series, really, I, I like those. Um, you know, and then I have cams made from Clay Smith, and there's other com- companies I deal with, you know, for the racing stuff. Yeah, all kinds of custom. But I was just talking for street because there's a lot of guys that say, hey, man, you had him on the podcast. Why don't you ask for his ideal street setup? You know what I mean? Because everybody wants – to know, like, hey, man, this is Jack Sacchetti approved. <laughs> so, again, I thought I think I told you earlier. I have a wall of shame that I've I've messed up a lot of parts, you know, by in learning. Sure. You know, but it's just, you know, the you can have the best street combination, but if you don't have enough oil in it, it runs hot. Yeah. Cooling runs hot. Um, if they don't select the right gear ratio, you know, you don't want to be cruising something to hit the next gear and it drops two thousand RPM. You know. It just doesn't accelerate fast. So you need something with a lot of torque, uh, you know, the VZ grinds or the, uh, the K grinds, the FK, the smaller FKs. They're all pretty, pretty uh, easy going, and, and they and they have a, a wide power band, and it works well. But and and then exhaust. What's your exhaust for the street? Again, depending. I mean, I get some guys that want bigger strokes. Small, you know, some people are smaller. It depends on the cam you put in it. You know, to me, the cam is like the brains that run the whole operation. They right. tell everything what they're going to do. You know, it's the uh, Tiger makes a real nice A1. I know the MP came out with a stainless exhaust that ran really, really well on the dyno. That's another thing I got to do. I got to play on the dyno all day, and they actually paid me for that. It's fun. Um, they got a stainless exhaust they came out with that works good. And, you know, inch and I'd say inch and five eighths is a good size exhaust for a street for street yeah uh, inch and three quarter if you're favoring a little more towards race and then you know obviously the big the, the bigger guys are two or two and a eighth headers but well man i definitely appreciate all the info you've given us i'd really enjoyed our time doing this and i'd love to have you back if you're ever coming out with something or if you just we i i i'm i'm starting to like i said i bought a drag car so uh it's kind of a um it's a complete turnkey car. It's a budget. I haven't run it yet at the track. It's a fiberglass one piece front end. And uh, uh, who knows? You might see me out at a drag strip sometime soon, making a fool of myself. But uh, 
hey, I'm going to give it the old college try and uh, and see what I can squeeze out of it. But I definitely I appreciate all the knowledge. I'm thankful for all the stuff that you've developed and put into the scene because a lot of that stuff has gotten to the street as well. And a lot of guys, you know, really appreciate the the work that you've done to develop parts and to really move our our industry forward. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and letting us get a get a chance to hear some of your story. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, and I just hope to live up to the name that I have and, and make some new stuff. And, you know, it, time will tell. But I'm just, you know, like I said, turn the page and I'm at a different stage of my life. So, well, uh, it'll be a cool thing to, you know, if you want to get my, my kid on there. You know, she'll Love give you her version of, of growing up and what it was like and, and uh, see what she has to say. She's, uh, she, she'd be more than willing to come on your show. No, I'd love to, I'd love to have her on because I definitely know that there's a, there's a whole different story over there about as far as her experience growing up, you know, and it's always interesting to see how our kids see things, you know? Yeah, I, I, I can, I can promise you she'll have stories of how I'm a bad uh, teacher, <laughs> you know, because at the beginning it was win, win, win. And, you know, and then finally I learned a lot when she went to Frank Holly driving school and um, one of the, you know, super comp cars and, she she gets a different view from other people, and I I, I wasn't the greatest coach, I'll tell you that, because it was it was a whole different thing. But then as the time went by, she's been racing for like twelve years now. Yeah, yeah she's, she's been, been out there, there a long time. time. Yeah, so she's uh she's learned, and and I I do at the track. I kind of step back, and I have a few people, you know, uh, my buddy Big Bad John, my buddy Junkyard Dog JYD, and. And my buddy Roscoe and just some of my friends, they will will do the talking for her because, you know, sometimes I'm not in the right frame of mind, but I'm getting better. I really am. <laughs> well, listen, it's good to see that you're still accepting growth at, even at the age you're at, man. Well, Jack, I appreciate you coming on, man. I look forward to seeing you at the next event when I'm down in Southern California. Or listen, if you come up here to our one crazy weekend event, October 7th and 8th, man, we're doing a strip cruise poker run and a car show here in Las Vegas, the Orleans Hotel and Casino. So we'd love to have you drag something and come out here, man. But, you know, I've been telling everybody that I see all the shows that's in the industry. I said, bring a car and just come out and enjoy and be part of the VW scene. Don't come out to sell something. Don't come out to just be part of the scene for one weekend in Vegas. You know what I mean? So uh, you never know. But uh, I look forward to it, man. And thanks again for your time. Ah, Thank you. Really appreciate it. If you like that podcast, and I know you did, make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. I need you to share the podcast with a friend. We're growing like gangbusters. You guys are doing what you do. Last month, we're up 2,000 more downloads than the month before. So keep doing what you're doing. Share the podcast with a friend because you know I appreciate it. Let's grow this thing like crazy, man. Again, if you want to check out my other podcast on my Mexico experience, check out 58 Days in a Mexican Prison. Until next week, guys. Later. Here's a Volkswagen that's big enough. The new VW Fastback Sedan. The Fastback also has the most powerful engine we've ever made. It's air-cooled. Since we made a VW that's a little roomier in the inside, Where most cars have their trunks, we have a 
Come into your Volkswagen dealer. He'll show you where the motor is.